My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand Francis Fukuyama through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic today? And more importantly, why did I have to read Francis Fukuyama three times throughout my studies and every IR student is learning about him? Hello, Dario. Well, the issue is that there are very few people who have been able to very explicitly bridge the gap between policymaking, foreign policy, and if you like, intellectual thought, um, academia. Um, we know that academics has an impact on policymaking. We know that politicians often get um, influenced, influenced or pushed in a certain direction by intellectual circles, but very few people actually have directly had an impact on the way that the West uh, behaves on the international stage. And Fukuyama is one of those very few. Fukuyama is one of those people who in the 1990s, in the beginning of the 21st century, had enormous impact on the way that the West developed its international relations, uh, the way the West went into Iraq, the way, the way the West perceived itself. In other words, the Western bubble, as we have been discussing throughout this podcast. So this episode is the first of almost a three-parter, where today we will be talking about Francis Fukuyama, and then further down the line we will be talking about other individuals that have shaped the Western bubble, such as Samuel Huntington. And what are the facts? Francis Fukuyama is a prominent American political scientist, philosopher, and writer. He was born in 1952 in Chicago, Illinois, and he's best known for his essay, The End of History, published in 1989 in the National Interest, based on which he then published his most influential book, The End of History and the Last Man, in 1992, which gained significant attention and generated widespread debate. In The End of History and the Last Man, Fukuyama argued that with the end of the Cold War and the collapse of communism, liberal democracy had become the final form of government. He posited that the worldwide spread of liberal democracy and free market capitalism would lead to the fulfillment of human desires for freedom and recognition. What is the bubble? So when we're talking about the bubble and why he's so important, I think we can almost go back to a lot of our episodes, like the war in Iraq um, or when we talk about Afghanistan uh, so many times, because he was part of an intellectual generation that gave a lot of content to the post-Cold War world and with this also to the post-9-11 world. Yes, in many ways he was in the right place at the right time, right? It was this American intellectual group of relatively young thinkers that had direct connections to politics, to the White House, to the Reagan era, that saw the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall as the moment that the West was legitimized as the only game in town, as the moment that everyone should follow the Western and especially the American model. And so you have this whole group of young academics who started analyzing what are we exactly as the West and, and who are we supposed 
to become as humanity and how does the rest of the world follow in our footsteps. Uh, it was essentially a very arrogant, but that is sometimes necessary in academia, a very arrogant group of young men, mostly men, who pushed for the narrative that now that the Cold War is over, the West is the deterministic future for the whole of humankind. And, and, and they had enormous impact on policymaking during this period. But can we, can we blame them for that? Because I think that's a thought that's very attractive after the Cold War. You know, you fought good versus evil for so long. And then at some point, the good guys, well, you actually win. So you write this. I mean, it's, it's not something that I think we can blame him for, right? Not at all. And I, so very often people speak about this group of people and uh, it's a little bit overly simplistic to just call them neoconservatives because there were a lot of different movements that that went in a similar direction. But the neoconservative movement is certainly a movement that Fukuyama was part of and that very strongly made this case. Often people are very dismissive of the neoconservative movement as just aggressive warmongers, but they were true idealists. And it was a very reasonable thing in some ways to believe that once you've defeated um, the bad guys in the Second World War, once you defeated the bad guys from a Western perspective, right, bad guys, um, uh, the bad guys in the cold, during the Cold War, um, once you have triumphed over evil, for you to believe in yourself as actually the saviors of humanity. Um, now, in 2023, we know that this was a horribly twisted and, and mistaken perspective. But in 1990 or 1995, it seemed a completely logical and reasonable approach to take. And so we should be a little bit tolerant of these individuals, especially those, including Fukuyama, which we'll discuss later, who later on in the 21st century actually regretted some of their positions and said, hey, we were wrong. Something that I um, read out in the fact sheet is that Fukuyama published in the national interest. And uh, in the discussion to this episode, I said, oh, why do I need to read this out? Uh, that's some that's a detail that I, I don't feel like is very important. But then you said it is important because of the publishers. So why is it important that um, his essay was published in the national interest? The, the neoconservative movement, again, which Fukuyama formed part of at the time, um, was influenced by an academic, which we might do an episode on in the future, called Leo Strauss. And one of the direct students of this um, academic was uh, Irving Kristol. And he, was, he, he became the editor of, um, the, uh, of the National Interest. He became basically the editor of Fukuyama's article. And... He and his son, Bill, William Crystal, Bill Crystal, uh, actually turned out to be very influential sort of media voices that supported a lot of the aggressive foreign policy that came out of this intellectual movement. The aggressive foreign policy towards the war on terror, towards Afghanistan, towards Iraq. And so the fact that he published, that Fukuyama published in the national interest was not in any way a coincidence. It was, again, part of this bubble of people, of intellectuals, media um, faces, and political advisors, policy advisors, who convinced each other and convinced themselves that they were the vanguard of 
what the 21st century was going to be like, that they were the ones who were pushing the United States and its allies towards leading the world into a free democratic capitalist nirvana, if you like. And the reason why IR students have to read it nowadays is, I mean, well, at least this was explained to me, is because he was wrong. Did, I mean, it caused widespread debate in the 1990s. Was this actually the case? I mean, why did it cause such a, such a big roar? I think the end of history, uh, Fukuyama's publications didn't cause as much debate as some other neoconservative um, publications because Fukuyama had an intellectual analysis. There was criticism of the inherent arrogance, the inherent arrogance about who we are as the West and, and this sort of attitude of we figured it out and everyone who's not on board is backwards you know that was kind of an an underlying tone but Fukuyama hit it relatively well in terms of an intellectual analysis that actually made a lot of sense I would also kind of push back against the idea that people nowadays have to read it because he was wrong I think the important reason to talk about Fukuyama and his publications in the 1990s is because it explains Western bubble behavior from the 1990s. And in many ways, it still be, uh, explains a lot of our Western bubble thinking, even now in 2023. Yes, it was mistaken in many ways. The Western bubble, as we discuss in all of our episodes, is mistaken. It leads to destruct destructive tendencies. But more than anything, it is important to understand where they came from. And Fukuyama is a serious thinker, a serious intellectual, who deserves recognition for being a very influential voice even if it was a voice that in the end led to destruction rather than construction do we still observe fukuyama's thinking and policy making nowadays i mean we've said a couple of times already that it's 2023 and now we know he was wrong but do we still observe this type of bubble thinking today very very much so and um, for one reason as well that Fukuyama is still alive and still lecturing and still writing and still publishing YouTube videos anyone can find him and he has very interesting things to say he should he should absolutely still be taken seriously but even his his original ideas are still rippling through the 21st century this this idea that somehow there is a utopian model that already is a big assumption, right? But the the assumption that there is a that there exists a utopian model, and that that utopian model comes somehow close to this liberal capitalist democratic form that was created in the nineteen nineties, and is still an underlying foundation of of a lot of our current foreign policy making. It's still very much visible in the way we talk about Ukraine, in the way we talk about Russia, in the way we talk about China. It's maybe not as explicit as in the 1990s. I think the West has obviously needed to become a little bit more modest and a little bit more reasonable in their approach towards the complexities of the world. But the underlying thinking that was founded by neoconservative and other movements at the end of the Cold War is still hugely influential. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? So when we're talking about the damages and the problem, I mean, we mentioned this in a full episode, the episode on the Iraq war. And we said that the neoconservatives at the time of the first Iraq war, they were junior advisors uh, in, the, in the Bush senior administration. And then in the Bush junior administration, they were senior advisors and more influential in really pushing 
for the Iraq war. So we have the entire aftermath of 9-11 uh, from a US policy perspective. That is basically the damage that these neoconservatives have caused, that people like Fukuyama and their thinking have caused. But it, I mean, especially with Fukuyama, it wasn't necessarily the case that he said, go invade Iraq. But what's the, what's the damage of his writing, of his teachings then? Well, actually, he kind of did say it in the sense that he wrote articles that very much pushed for um, an aggressive stance against Iraq, something he later again regretted. I think it's important to repeat that because that's also the sign of an intelligent human being, right? Someone who can later go back to his words and say, look, I made a mistake there. I was absolutely wrong. Um, but he very much pushed for aggressive foreign policy. These were people who were sort of the, the young intellectuals in the Reagan White House in the 1980s. Then in the early 1990s, they were frustrated by the reluctance of the White House under George H. Bush to actually aggressively pursue what they believed was a, a deterministic agenda of making the world American, essentially. Uh, they, they were frustrated by that. They weren't at the senior places that they wanted to be yet. They didn't have the, the, the influence within the White House that could turn foreign policy yet. Fast forward 10 years later, fast forward to the beginning of 21st century, to the post-9-11 era, all of a sudden they are in those positions of significant influence. Uh, Fukuyama from the outside as an advisor, but not as an in, uh, not internally working for the White House, um, but with many neoconservative contacts within the White House and together forming, again, this bulwark of aggressive foreign policy. And all of a sudden, they can actually create foreign policy. All of a sudden, they can push for the war in Iraq. They can push for a very militarized war on terror, a war on terror that goes way beyond anything that um, that that nowadays we would find acceptable in 2023. And... They laid the foundation for this kind of influence by creating the uh, project for an American century, a new American century. This idea of we're going to form the 21st century um, in America's image. We're going to shape humanity according to our values, because our values are the deterministic endpoints of humanity. And they wrote about this. They, create, they provided political cover uh, for the strategic and political destruction that was then caused by politicians such as George uh, W. Bush, who weren't those intellectuals, who didn't have the bigger picture in mind. But to, to, to them, to the politicians, that academic cover, that intellectual cover felt right. It felt in line with their Judeo-Christian values. And therefore, there was this sort of perfect storm of politicians, Republican politicians and neoconservative intellectuals coming together and say, this is the world we're going to create and this is going to take us to a better tomorrow. And it was genuinely idealistic thinking. It wasn't just about money or strategy or power. It was much more than that. And from all I know is that the, the democratic politicians were also on board with it. Not all of them, but a significant part of them. Uh, let's name one, just a random person, a senator called Joe Biden. He was a major, major proponent of this kind of policy. He was very, very eager to support the Iraq war because it felt in line with how they perceived history to be. It's very easy in 2023 to be critical of that, to be fair. Um, lots of people, myself included, were already critical of it in 2003. Um, but uh, in 2023, it seems almost a little bit absurd to take this approach, knowing 
how history has developed since. But don't underestimate the power of the 1990s. Don't underestimate how obvious it seems that the West had won history. And that's exactly what Fukuyama presented to the world intelligently, um, charismatically. He made the case that history was done and that we had solved all the problems that humanity had faced over the past 10,000 years. And what now? When we talk about the future, um, so you just said that he, Fukuyama basically provided ideology and a philosophical cover for these terrible foreign policy decisions. Is that then something we want less of? Is Do we want less ideology in politics? Because that's one of those things that keeps on flying around, right? It's, oh, our politicians, they're way too ideological and you cannot listen to them. It is kind of the, I would argue, the disease of, of modern days that we believe that reasonable people are always somewhere in the center and reject ideology. Uh, we need ideology, we need idealistic thinking, but we need more than anything that academic and intellectual clash um, that then over time influences our political perspectives and where we want to go as humanity. So even though the neoconservative movement was not just intellectually wrong, but led to enormous destruction, again, something that uh, Fukuyama very much acknowledged, and I think he even, if I recall correctly, um, uh, likened the neoconservative movement later on to Leninism, which was not a compliment. Uh, you know, he was very aggressive against his own tribe, if you like, his own past tribe. Um, later on, when he saw the destruction that had been caused in Iraq and elsewhere, we need that kind of intellectual clash about who do we want to be as humanity. And the fact that this can lead to problems, and it can, doesn't deny the fact that management of society in a sort of central, moderate, moderate way also leads to enormous destruction. Look at the slow-burning destruction that we're witnessing now in the past 10 years. Look at how sort of an unquestioned, sort of moderate, weak neoliberalism is, is leading to enormous hardship to, to issues with the climate, to, to income inequality, to a West being on a perpetual decline, in a perpetual decay. Where are the Fukuyamas of 2023, right? Where are the big intellectual debates that allow us to inform politics and that allow us for a politician to say, this is where I want to take the world. Um, I really, really hope that we go back to an era where we, we can have these clashes, maybe with a little bit more moderation than, you know, the neoconservatives in the White House, because we know that went wrong in the end. So we're basically asking for ideology, not necessarily what people confused for ideology, I almost want to say, you know, this very extreme left-wing, right-wing thinking and believing that everyone who doesn't have an ideology is in the center and therefore is correct because, well, that ultimately leads to, leads to management. But you want to have a fight among academics and intellectuals who can admit that they are wrong, just like uh, Fukuyama, to have a serious discussion about where do we want to take society and where do we want to take the world. Who are we in a very rich tradition of Foucault and Sartre and, and all these postmodernists and, 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 and Derrida, who Fukuyama worked with when he was younger? You know, this, this, this line of intellectual debate about our own identity, who we want to be, with a certain level of modesty when it comes to 
application when it comes to actual policy making there we have to be careful and certainly with a lot of modesty when it comes to tribalism exactly as you said it's not about one tribe versus the other it's about engaging in these conversations and i personally very much miss those conversations nowadays um the conversations about who we are what is, is there such a thing as an hegelian future is there are there perspectives on humanity that that will lead us to a better place um or are we sort of are we prisoners of this never-ending cycle of destruction or can we actually escape that somehow those kinds of conversations are absolutely essential and and the fact that sometimes those conversations then get abused by politicians into destructive ways shouldn't make us shy away from actually trying to analyze and understand ourselves. So that's the reason why IR students like myself have to read these, well, yeah, I want to call them great thinkers. And um, should want to read them, Dario, not just have to. Should definitely want to read them, yes. Uh, so, so read these great big thinkers um, to engage in that active discussion about where do we want to take society. Absolutely. It's, it's the only way forward. Without that, who are we as humanity? How can we claim to make progress without these kinds of conversations and these kinds of debates? This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on Fukuyama. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side, Balder. Which closing quote did you pick for us today? This is a quote from Francis Fukuyama, obviously, and um, somehow it makes me think of people like Jordan Peterson, who we can maybe discuss in future episodes, Dario. Um, perhaps when you are young, you think that something must be profound just because it is difficult and that you don't have the self-confidence to say, this is just nonsense.